messages that I've entitled Holy and Free, we've been examining the Scriptures for some time now to see what biblical commands, what principles, what precepts apply to the various parts of everyday life. Now, many people strive to uh, live the Christian life, but they do so by going and setting for themselves what I can only say are non-biblical standards. They put out rules beyond what God says that, that not only steal the joy out of walking with Christ, but they really lead you into a legalism. A legalism by which you define righteousness by this standard that God did not set. Now, there are others that strive to live the Christian life, but they go to the opposite extreme. They believe that liberty spoken of in verses such as uh, 2 Corinthians 3.17 or Galatians 5.1, which talks about freedom in Christ, they think that means license. They can do anything they want, but neither is true. Galatians 5.1 tells us that Christians have been freed from their bondage, or actually it says there, their yoke of slavery to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was a system by which people tried to gain righteousness by doing certain things. And that was slavery. We've been freed from that. Instead, the Christian is made righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Philippians 3.9 is very clear on that. That is how we're made righteous, through faith in Christ. Now, many replace the Mosaic Law then with this, this system. They devise it. They go beyond God's standards and they have done just what the Pharisees did at the time of Christ. Such people honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them. When you insist on rules of conduct that are beyond what God requires, you've entered into the realm of legalism and God hates it. And the verse there is exactly dealing with that. They set aside what God had said and taught as doctrine the precepts of men. Now, the other extreme is the same problem. It's just the other extreme. There are those who insist a Christian can do anything they want, but that enters the realm of license. And God hates that. Hates it very much. There in Romans 6, 12 through 22, we find out that we've been freed from the law, but we've now been made slaves of righteousness because before we were slaves of sin. In 1 Peter 2.16, we find that our freedom should never be used as a covering for sin. Yet many people do. 1 Corinthians 9.21 and Galatians 6.2 both talk about the fact that though we are free from the Mosaic law, we are under the law of Christ. There is still a law that applies to us, but it's a different law, a different kind of law. If you think about it, John 13.34 is where Jesus gives us a new commandment, that we love one another as he loved us, but guess what word is in there? Commandment. Commandment is law. Commandment is something you must do because the one who gave it has authority to require it of us. Then in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20, we go out into all the world, we evangelize, we're teaching them about who Christ is, they respond to it, we then baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what is the rest of Christian life? Teach them to obey whatsoever things I've commanded you. So there is still a law that applies to us as Christians. We don't have license, we have liberty, we have freedom from sin in order to now live in righteousness. We don't earn righteousness through our obedience. We obey because we've been made righteous and there's a big difference. Now this morning I want to address Christian liberty and freedom in the areas of dating, courtship, and marriage. Uh, All you single people, pay attention all the way through. We're going to talk about marriage first, but you must understand that if you're going to understand how you're going to find a, a decent husband or wife in the future. God has a plan for marriage. He has a desire for it. We need to know what it is. Now, those of you already married, this is a good catch-up. Hopefully, it's not brand new to you, but a good reminder. God has a plan for marriage. And it's beyond what most people even dream about when they get married. Well, in order to understand Christian marriage, you've got to define it. And we live in a society in which there are many, many definitions to marriage, aren't there? 
Uh, on the humorous side, we find such things as marriage occurs when cupidity meets stupidity. You like that one? That, that was a good rhyme for Jim Pagonis, and Jim wasn't here today. Someone else said that marriage is a partnership in which two people agree to change each other. Another person said, marriage is the world's most expensive way of discovering all your faults. Now, this one's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. It probably says something about his marriage. He said, marriage is neither heaven nor hell. It's simply purgatory. I guess Mary Todd Lincoln was a rough woman to live with. Someone else said marriage was like a pair of shears. A man and woman are so joined that they cannot be separated. They are often moving in opposite directions, yet always punishing anyone who comes between them. It's not bad either. Well, there's a lot of laughter in a good marriage, but marriage itself is not a laughing matter, is it? There's a seriousness to it. And so on a more serious note, some people strive to define marriage in terms of a, a legal contract. In fact, if you look on Webster's Dictionary, that's how they define it. It's a man and woman being legally united on a permanent basis. That's their definition. Some, because of that, they take it seriously as a legal contract and they draw up a contract prior to the wedding. They call it a prenuptial agreement so that they will know what will happen to all their assets should the contract be broken. That's their view of marriage. It's a contract. Other people view it in terms of business relationship. It's a partnership. Two people agree to work together for the common good of both of them, the mutual benefit of the other. It's a partnership. There are others who would say that either one of these, that's really their concept, but they want to be more holy. They want to sound more, you know, more spiritual than that. So they won't use these terms. They will use the term covenant because it is a biblical term and it sure sounds a lot more solemn than saying I have a contract. I made a contract with my wife. Yeah, I made a covenant with my wife. Doesn't that sound more spiritual? But really what they're talking about is the same thing. Is it a contract, a partnership? Well, biblical marriage is much more than any of these. It's more than a covenant. It's more than a partnership. It's more than a contract. Now, on the perverse side, we find a lot of things going on in our nation. Vermont has refrained from using the word marriage, but they've already given legal status to same-sex unions. The recent Supreme Court decision in Texas is going to be used by homosexual activists to strive to push homosexual marriage in the United States. Understand that Canada already recognizes that as a legal union. Sinful people may want society to accept them in their depravity. They might even be successful in getting society to recognize that. They were in Canada. But they cannot be successful in gaining God's approval because it's opposite of what he says it is. They cannot get God to change his definition of marriage because he is the one that created it. And ultimately, understand that only God's definition of marriage matters because he is the one that created it and he is the one that will judge those who disobey his commandments. Isn't that correct? So ultimately, only his definition counts. Well, what then is marriage? Well, here's my stab at it. Marriage is to be a monogamous lifetime relationship between a man and a woman which is bound together by a love that reflects that of Jesus Christ for his church and in which each spouse can fulfill their God-given roles to one another the family, and society. Because marriage is more than just two people. It affects much more than that. It will affect a glorification of God and will affect society outside themselves. So marriage is more than that. So that's my stab at it. I think that reflects what the Bible says about marriage. And because of this, and knowing God then has this plan for marriage, when I have people come in for marital counseling, because they got problems. Problems occur in marriage, right? Problems occur. I, no matter how bad a situation they present, I can confidently tell them there is hope because God has a plan for their marriage. In fact, he cares more about their marriage than they do. 
He has a design for marriage for it to be something that will be a blessing beyond their wildest dream. All they need to do is quit doing it their way and start living their marriage divine style. Well, to understand what that is, we need to look at the nature and purpose of marriage. Well, what is the nature of marriage? The first thing that marriage is, is that it's good. That almost seems ridiculous, I'd have to say that. But we live in a time when I don't think people understand that. There's so much negative stuff that goes on. But marriage is good. God established marriage in Genesis 1.31 when he brought Adam and Eve together. Chapter 2 tells us about it. But in 131, he pronounces all that he did that on that day, that includes marriage, and said it was very good. That's God's pronouncement. It's very good. Over in Ecclesiastes 9.9, Solomon said this, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Marriage is a good part of life. Even Solomon in his cynicism of Ecclesiastes recognizes that. Now, again, I'm taking the time to make this point that marriage is good because so many people have a negative view of it. People marry with romantic dreams in mind and then problems come and they want to blame marriage. But marriage isn't the problem. Most jokes, quips about marriage are from the negative point, aren't they? Even some of the ones I read earlier are from a negative point. It doesn't sound like Abraham Lincoln had a great marriage. It was a negative view of it. But marriage is still good. The problem isn't marriage, it's that people are sinful And they have to overcome the problems that their sin brings into the relationship. Now, the negative view of marriage in our society is seen in comparing some census bureau figures. I had some fun with this. Let's see. Households. 1970 versus 2000. In 1970 here, 70.6% of households in the United States were married couples. In 1970, 10%, 10 10.6% were single parent households. 16.1% were single adults. Now, single adults were anybody 15 and over that were living uh, apart from their parents. So it it took in very young people. That's all the collegians, too. So 16.1. In 30 years, here's what's happened. Couples is dropped to 52.8%. That's a huge drop in 30 years. Single parenting has risen to 16%, and single adults are now a little over a quarter of the population. What's happened to marriage? What's going on? Now, we also need to look at this here and say, you know what? There's a huge group out there that needs to be reached for Christ. Are we doing it? There's a demographic switch. And part of it is because of a negative view of marriage. Another interesting statistic I pulled out was uh, the fact that marriage is being delayed longer. Now, in 1970, the average median age for first marriage for women was 20.8 years. It is now up to 25.1 years. That's interesting because when I was in that age group, uh, officially, ladies, you were an old maid if you're 25 and not married. Now the average woman now is an old maid before she gets married. So I guess they better have moved that figure up a little bit somewhere, right? All right? Men has changed too. From 23.2 years, it's now 26.8 years. Now there's a lot of reasons marriage is delayed, but a primary one now is people are afraid of it. They're scared of marriage. They have a negative view of it. Now, eventually, most people still get married, but they're afraid of it. Why such a negative view of marriage? Because they're not using God's definition. Another thing that is given a sort of a negative view of marriage comes from the religious traditions that people come from. Now, some of you come from a tradition in which those who are single as seen as spiritually superior to those who are married, right? Aren't the priests single? Aren't they viewed as the epitome of what you're supposed to be for those coming out of Catholicism? I think that also is affected with a negative view of marriage. Now, understand, 
Paul makes a case in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 8 that it's good to be unmarried, even as he was. He uh, talks about advantages to singleness and later on in that chapter, verses 32 through 35. He also points out, though, that either, whether it's marriage or singleness, is a gift from God. He also points out that his reason for his avocation there in 1 Corinthians 7 for singleness is because there was a present distress going on in the, in the area of Corinth. He wanted to keep them from suffering from that. He also was very clear that there was no sin in marrying. In fact, he says in verse 38 of chapter 7 that marriage is good. Over in Ephesians 5, he demonstrates that marriage glorifies God. We're going to talk about that a little later. And in 1 Timothy 4.3, he says that those who forbid marriage are paying attention to the doctrine of demons. So Paul's not against marriage. Marriage is good. It's very good. Jesus pointed out that those who would remain single for the sake of God's kingdom have a special gift from God in service. That's Matthew 19, 11, and 12. We'll look at that a little later too. But marriage is good. Singleness can be good, but marriage is good. In fact, we'd have to say that marriage, the very nature of it, is to be a blessing. Proverbs 18:22 states, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I don't know about you, but I want the Lord's favor. So I went out and found a wife, and I received the Lord's favor. Proverbs 19:14 states, house and wealth are inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. And I got one of those, so I know she's from the Lord. I have a prudent wife. Song of Solomon expresses the blessings of marital love. And then there's the examples of good marriages in the Bible. Think of marriages, some even seem a little odd, but like Ruth and Boaz. And yet what a blessing that marriage was. Both of them demonstrating what godly character. You've uh, Elkanah and Hannah. Hannah's the mother of Samuel. Um, Elkanah said, you know, is, am I not better to you than seven sons? You know, you're so, want so much a baby. You know what? She didn't rebuke him for that, but she still wanted a baby. She had a good husband. They were a blessing. Then you have the description in Proverbs 31 of a woman that is a wonderful blessing to her husband and family, so much so they praise her in the gates. They praise her publicly because of what a wonderful person she is. It's good marriages. It's a blessing. The jokes about marriage being a curse are many, But that's only because people do not follow God's plan and they get married for the wrong reasons. Or they won't follow his plan after they get married and they're going to have problems. Now, all this is not to say that marriage doesn't have struggles. Every person here who's married knows there are struggles in marriage. If it's not with each other, it's with something else. There are struggles you're going to face in marriage. But just because a marriage has struggles doesn't mean it's not good. People are sinful by nature and practice. Are we not? By nature and practice, we're sinful. And so when we get married, we bring in our sinful nature and practice and the other person now has to put up with it. But they've got their own sin nature and practice and we're trying to put up that and it's the sin problem that causes these struggles and conflicts. We want what we want, not necessarily what God wants, nor are we necessarily willing to give of ourselves to the other person. Even in a Christian marriage, there are going to be struggles because no believer walks in perfect holiness. I don't and neither do you. None of us walk in perfect holiness. We're going to continue in the struggle with sin until we're fully sanctified at Christ's return. Now, in Christian marriage, the problems are faced and they're used by God as a means of making us more holy. They're they're actually part of the blessing. Remember what James 1 and Romans 5 tells us? James tells us to count all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, these, these problems, these things that come up, produce endurance. Endurance produces perseverance and that produces maturity of proven character. We become what we're supposed to be through the struggles and trials we go through even in marriage. In fact, let me ask you a rhetorical question. 
Where else could a person learn to love unconditionally and sacrificially except in such a relationship? I don't believe you could. Because it is the commitment made by the promises to be true and to love for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness and health, that forces you out of your selfishness to mature and deal with problems. That's what turns selfishness into a true love. It's the commitment. Marriage is the means by which God matures both the man and the woman into a greater Christ-likeness. And we have to admit that too. Even in the midst of struggles we go through, even when the partner is out to lunch and sinful, God still can use that in our lives to make us more holy, to keep our focus where it needs to be. Marriages break apart when people remain selfish and do not love enough to work through problems. Marriage isn't the problem. This is the problem. Divorce occurs when at least one partner refuses to keep the promises they made when they took their wedding vows. And because they refuse to keep their promises, that tells you about their character, doesn't it? That's why these occur. They refuse to do what God has said. Now, in saying all this, none of it means that you must get married. In fact, we have to conclude the Bible makes marriage optional. You do not have to get married. Okay? Right, guys? Because some of the guys are getting a little worried here, you know, because the girls are looking at them. You don't have to get married. It's okay. And girls, you don't have to get married either to be successful. You can live a life as a single and have a great blessing from God in your whole life. It is optional. I've already pointed out, Paul says there's a lot of advantages to singleness. What are some of those advantages? 1 Corinthians 7, he says this, verse uh, 32. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. And the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and spirit. The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And that's true. There are very pragmatic advantages to being single. Now, I didn't get married until I was 29. And it's not because I was afraid of marriage. It's just I was too busy to do anything about it. Finally had some time. But prior to that, my time, my energy, my finances, I had freedom with them. I could do whatever I believed was best with all those things without a concern for anybody else. I could do what I wanted. And so there's a lot of things I did during those years that would have been very difficult to do if I was married. Uh, I furthered my education, went to seminary. That would have been hard if we'd been married. In fact, the last year I was still in seminary, and it was a difficult year because of the, the time pressures and stuff. There was a lot of ministries I participated in up to the time I was 29 that would have been difficult to do if I was married. In fact, I sought to go on several missions trips to places that you know, it would have been unsafe to take a wife. I couldn't have done that if I had been married. There are practical, pragmatic advantages to being single. Once I was married, there was now new priorities new responsibilities, and I had to be cautious of what I did because I had to take into consideration other people. It's just part of marriage. How would I use my time, my finances, which ministries? A lot of that changed. Because some things I used to do, I didn't have time for. I had other priorities, responsibilities. Now, for guys, gals understand this. For guys, when you're single, who cares what your room looks like, right? But once you're married, you know, you've got to have... They want these frilly curtains and stuff. We just put up with it. But before you're married, we could care less. Give us, you know, just throw us out on the ground. We're fine. We'll go anywhere. Do anything. We don't care if we bathe, right? But once you're married, you should bathe, right? Okay? So just understand what you're dealing with with guys. Take advantage of those things. You can go places, do things you couldn't do otherwise. Now, the Bible does not command all people to get married. 
but the vast majority of people will. Why? Because that's the way God has made it, men and women. He has made us with an attraction for each other. As I pointed out earlier, though, Matthew 19, 11 through 12, celibacy is a gift from God. Staying single for the purpose of the kingdom is really a gift from God. And so if you're a single adult, you need to ask yourself whether God has gifted you to be single. If so, you need to consider, how can I best use my singleness for his glory? In fact, until you're married, you need to ask that question anyways. How can I best use my singleness for God's glory? How can I take advantage of the life situation I find myself in? But if you don't believe you should be single and you believe you should be married, then you have a whole lot of other considerations to take into account, right? You have to consider God's purpose for marriage and then how God is going to find you a life partner. So we need to understand what is the purpose of marriage. And the Bible gives several reasons for marriage. The first, found in Genesis 2, is companionship. Now, Genesis 2 recounts all the activities that took place on the sixth day. In verse 7, we find God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. He then made the Garden of Eden and he placed Adam in the garden to care for it. In verse 18, God says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. He then creates the animals and have all the animals comes before Adam and he names them. But of all the animals, there's none suitable for, for Adam. It's at this point that God takes a rib from Adam, puts him in a deep sleep, takes a rib, and he forms Eve. He then gives Eve to Adam, verses 21-22, and Adam's response is this, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. That's the first marriage. God gave Eve to Adam. And then in verse 24, Moses places this statement, which is true then for all marriages since then. This established it. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, they shall become one flesh. That's the establishment of marriage. It's right there in Genesis. So the first purpose, though, here is companionship. Adam being alone was the first not good in all of creation, and God corrected it, that very thing, before the end of the first day. God's design of a man and a woman is that they correspond to each other. They have a symbiotic relationship. That means that they can do more together than the sum of each one individually. That's what symbiosis is. There's a greater increase in being able to accomplish things because they're together than they would if they were each alone. Now, Solomon mentions a couple of evangelists over in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. These are practical things, but Solomon, even in his cynicism, understands it. Uh, here he says, verse 9, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. That's simple stuff, but it's true, isn't it? Two are better than one. An interesting thing that comes from insurance mortality rates, married people live longer than single people. People live longer than single people. So that's the first purpose, companionship. The second purpose is also found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And it has to do with this leaving and cleaving, becoming one flesh. It's procreation. God brought Eve to Adam. They became married. He instructed them in Genesis 1.28 to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then he went on, he said, and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves in the earth. In other words, mankind could not fulfill God's design for man in being, having dominion over the earth unless there's a lot more men and women. 
Now, God could have, if he had wanted to, just continued to create them himself. didn't take much for him to take a little dirt and poof, there's a man. woman took a little bit more effort, right? All right? Had to take the rib. Woman's glorified dirt, man's just dirt. All right? But he could have done that, couldn't he? So you, you can be glad, ladies. You're better than he is. But that's not his plan. His plan was for the man and the woman, in a similar fashion as in the rest of all created life, is reproduced after their kind. But that reproduction was to take place only in marriage. It's not to be biological activity. Its purpose is in marriage. Procreation is something that belongs to marriage. Now that brings up the next aspect that is part of the purpose of marriage. And it's marital intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 and 2 Paul says that it's good for man not to touch a woman. He's talking about the physical aspects of that, physical intimacy. He says, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And then he summarized that in verse 9, said, it is better to marry than to burn. That's not the greatest reason for getting married, but you know what? It's a legitimate one. Physical intimacy is another purpose for marriage. Now, the Bible is clear that physical intimacy between a man and woman belongs only in marriage. If it occurs before marriage, it's called fornification and it is forbidden. In fact, Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 27 spell out that it brings the death penalty under the Mosaic law. God was serious about this. It's not to occur prior to marriage. If it occurs outside of marriage, that is called adultery. It is also forbidden. Exodus 20, verse 14, one of the Ten Commandments. Leviticus 20, verse 10, spells out, it also brings the death penalty under the Mosaic Law. God was serious about it. Physical intimacy is only within the marriage bonds, not before that happens and not outside of it. Now, there are groups such as Planned Parenthood that reject God's design. Much of our society now rejects God's design. And understand, the reason is they view man not as somebody special, not as a creature specially made in God's image, but as simply an animal. And that is why they advocate what they do. They pass out birth control devices to unmarried teens and advocate to have them available in high schools because they see young people as animals that cannot control themselves. The Bible does not view humans as that. And we do not view our young people as that. We view them as precious human beings who can have self-control and can do what is right and can pursue holiness and godliness through the help of the Holy Spirit. They can be a blessing to other people, but our society doesn't anymore. And unfortunately, we reap the consequences of this evil avocation. We reap it in abortions and single-parent homes, single-mother homes, I should put. God's design is that human sexuality is expressed only within the marriage relationship, and that within that marriage relationship, it is a wonderful expression of love. In fact, Proverbs 5 and Song of Solomon both deal with this. Proverbs 5 contrasts adultery, harlotry, and its evil and its, its dire consequences with the blessing of the same actions going on in marriage and how it's a wonderful thing. Song of Solomon is, extols the physical relationship within marriage as a virtuous thing. So this is a purpose of marriage which can be enjoyed, but it's an activity that is not to be engaged in by those who are not married. Hebrews 13, verse 4 warns, Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. He's still serious about it. Paul warned in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 concerning sexual immorality that we are to flee from it. In fact, he says, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And how many diseases are sexually transmitted? 
and they're devastating. If you're single, then you need to heed Paul's warning to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. Don't follow society. Follow the Lord. So those are three purposes, but there's one more, and that is that marriage is to glorify God. We read this earlier in a responsive reading, but back over in Ephesians again, we see that God's design for marriage really isn't about just those two people being together. It's beyond that. Again, Paul explains the role of a husband and wife. He quotes from Genesis 2.24, For this cause a man shall leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And then he says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. The very next verse goes right back into the two people. On, the man needs to love the husband, the wife needs to respect her, her husband. Uh, the man needs to love his wife and she needs to respect her husband. I'll get that correct. But what does this say? It says that your marriage is not just about you. Your marriage is to be a reflection of Christ's love for the church. And her love back is to be the response of the church to Christ. You are to be a picture of God's love for his people. That's what marriages be and produce. And obviously, a marriage cannot fulfill that if you're not fulfilling the roles that God has established within marriage. Now, I've spoken in detail about the roles of husbands and wives uh, before, so I'm not going to do it here. Uh, if you want to know more about it, uh, there are some tapes available on Ephesians 5, 22-33. Just fill out a card and, and we'll make those up for you. I only say here that the roles are not optional for Christians. And they are still God's design and the best option for non-Christians. The husband is to love his wife in the same self-sacrificial manner that Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. He is still seeking her best interest at all times, pursuing helping her become holy. He is to seek to understand his wife and lead her into this holiness. The wife voluntarily follows that leadership while returning his love with respect and care. That's God's design. There's a lot more you could read on it. Ephesians 5, the passage we just talked about. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 through 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. Psalm 15. Those are in your notes. Study those passages. Find out this is what God says about marriage. The last two, Proverbs 31, guys, that's the kind of woman you want to find. Gals, Psalm 15, that's the kind of guy you want to find. Those are the character qualities that that need to be there. So the fourth purpose is that marriage is to glorify God. Now, explaining all this about marriage, we now come to this. If you're single, how do you find a partner? How do you find this uh, lifelong mate? What do you do if you want to get married? Now, again, understanding God's purpose in marriage... His design for marriage is going to help you a long way of knowing what to look for and how to go about it, right? If it's just after somebody cute or handsome or pretty or beautiful, you probably don't care about this. But these are the things that are most important. If all you care about is cute, you're going to go about it a different way than if you're looking for someone who's godly. Now, there are no specific biblical commands to Christians concerning who to marry other than this. Christians are to marry in the Lord. Christians are to marry other Christians, not non-Christians. That's unequally yoking yourself. That leads to problems. Lots of problems. A lot of heartache. God seeks to spare you from that and so that your marriage can glorify Him. You need to have a partner that desires the same things as you do. And that's to glorify God. Now, the examples we find in Scripture of how to find a spouse are wide-ranging. And they go from all extremes. You have the extreme, like in Genesis 24, um, Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for his son Isaac, right? And he just said, that's great. Here's my wife and there's no questions asked. 
So you have parents arranging the marriages without any input from the son. So there's one example. That's quite an extreme, right? How many of you single people want that to happen? See, no one wanted that. Parents want to do that, but single people don't. You have the other extreme over in um, uh, Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 11. It gives uh, commands concerning what to do with the spoils of war, including if a man sees a beautiful woman among the captives and wants to marry her. That was his whole interest, and he marries her. What are the consequences of that? So there's lots of extremes of biblical examples, but if you follow those, the, the fruit of what happened, there's lots of extremes too. Good marriages and very bad ones. Now our society, including our Christian subculture, we have come to accept what we call dating as the normal method of finding a marriage partner. But understand that dating is a 20th century American invention. If you go to other countries, they don't do this. They have other ways that they find marriage partners. This is still pretty much something that's American. And it's only been recent. It appears to be a consequence of a couple things. One, our society is multicultural. It's also uh, multi-class. And there's a lot of freedom and mixing between all these classes. A lot of the ways other cultures do it, it keeps classes separated. But we just, it's all mixed up. You go to college and you may have a millionaire next to someone who's going there on a grant, right? It's all mixed up. So that's one factor. Another factor is the American independent spirit. We want to do it our way. Add into that something else that occurred in the last hundred years, and that's the ease of transportation. Cars had a whole lot to do with this. When you had to go and you had to walk a long way, you didn't necessarily want to walk a mile back into town. You sat there in the girls' parlor and were entertained there. It's just too much work to do anything else. But now you pick up in the car and you off to go, you're by yourself. So this is an American invention. In prior centuries, even in America, the method was courtship. Now the two are very different from each other in fundamental assumptions and therefore in the practices that come out of them. Well, let's talk about dating first, okay? In dating, the fundamental assumption is that the couple are going to make their own decisions with little or no outside influence, especially for the parents. They're, out, they're going to find their own partner. That's about it, isn't it? They're making their own decisions. Now, in our society, that decision is largely going to revolve around romantic interests, and it's usually generated uh, by some initial spark, often a physical attraction, and then they start doing enjoyable activities together. In fact, we have to say that... Um, Enjoyment is a foundational aspect of dating. And it's, it's a pragmatic thing. I mean, gals, let's, let's face it. When your husband was dating you and he said, hey, would you like to go with me? I'll take you out to dinner and a show. Because that usually seems what revolves around, right? A meal and entertainment. You'd, you might consider that. That's not a bad way to spend an evening. But if he said, would you like to come over and help me fix my car to do my chores and, and clean my bathroom? What would you say? You wouldn't do it, would you? Okay. So, enjoyment is a big aspect of the dating relationship. You've got to do something that's fun because that keeps the interest up. So, that's how it's done. Now, dating couples generally define love in terms of positive feelings of affection. And since your feelings of affection increase when you do a lot of fun things together, very rapidly, that can get pretty serious. In fact, very serious, very rapidly. Well, that leads to problems because immorality in dating relationships is a great temptation. Not just for the collegians, not just for those who are in their careers, but for high schoolers as well. Because there's a lot of pressure in our sensual society for this. But even if immorality is avoided, the often result is a quick engagement and wedding and they haven't dealt with basic compatibility issues. They eventually service and then you've got severe conflicts. 
should have been dealt with prior to getting married. Now, another danger of dating is that if the feelings of affection diminish for any reason, the relationship can end because there's not a solid foundation for it. I'm hurt, forget you, I'm gone. And so as one social observer put it, dating teaches you more about how to break up than how to stay together. And isn't that true? I believe that's one major reason we see this long delay in getting people getting married now. It's because they've been hurt over and over and over and over again and to become more and more scared into entering into a relationship. Hurt. Very hurt. Now, personally, you may have already caught this from how I've presented dating. I'm against it. Why? Pragmatic. I can find so little positive about it. I really can't. I can find so little positive about it. Dating is not good preparation for marriage. There are better ways to find a spouse. There are also better ways to learn about and develop friendships with the opposite sex. Be a different kind of fruit. Don't be a date. Be a fig. Okay? F-I-G. Be a fig. You know, besides, you know, dates are, are, are fruits that kind of, they're small and they're shriveled. They, they're dried up. Figs are plump and luscious and tasty. Okay? Fig stands for friend in God. All right? Different fruit here. Be a fig. A big problem about being a date is that by its very nature, there's this romantic pressure, isn't there? There's a romantic pressure. And at, no matter what age, there's a romantic pressure involved with it. But in being a fig, there's no romantic pressure. You're being a friend. It's very different. You're simply being a godly friend. In a date, you're trying to impress somebody with all your good points. And you will do things you wouldn't otherwise do. And you present really a false image of yourself. You're not being who you really are. But if you're just being a friend, a godly friend, you can be who you are all the time. A fig develops relationships based on the reality of daily life, not just in those things that are enjoyable. In a fig relationship, it's not always going out and doing something that's fun. You know what? You may be in a team of people who are cleaning the bathrooms here in the church, and that's not always fun. Or you're out raking leaves for people or, or doing some other chore that's a lot of hard, sweaty work. And girls, I know when it's hot and sweaty and your hair is not quite what it used to be, you don't look as good as you'd like to be. But you know what? That's reality of life. That's being a fig. All right? In a date... It's an exclusive relationship in which jealousies can easily arise while a fig welcomes new people into the circle of friends. In fact, for a date, if, let's say even a group is going somewhere, a date says, will you go with me to whatever it is? A fig says, hey, will you join us going to wherever? See, there's a big difference, isn't there? The circle of friends is much broader. People are welcomed into it instead of shunned out. A date is self-centered, being concerned on whether they are liked or not and whether where is this relationship heading. It's always in the back of the mind. Where is this going? Where is this going? Does he like me? Does she, does she like me? You know, what, what's going to happen next week? That's constantly there. Well, a good fig is only concerned about being a godly influence regardless of any personal gain that is there or not. How can I be used God in this person's life? How can I be a friend? Being a fig is a great foundation for any future marriage relationship. Well, if a godly friendship, being a good fig, develops into something more serious, then the next step really is courtship. And a fundamental aspect of courtship is that godly decisions are made with multiple wise counsel. That's why it's very different than dating. It's a fundamental assumption that's different. Proverbs 1.5 says, A wise man will hear and increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. Proverbs 12.15 adds this, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. So there's dating. But a wise man is he who listens to counsel. That's courtship. Because that's the fundamental difference between the two. And because of that fundamental difference, how their practice 
ends up being different. Let me give you a brief description of the concept of courtship. First of all, in courtship, it, um, it does not occur until the man is, has a reasonable expectation to be able to support a wife currently or in the very near future. He doesn't even get into it. He doesn't pursue it. What he does until that time is he's occupied with what other priorities are in life. It could be schooling. It could be getting a decent job, uh, working hard, uh, getting ahead financially, paying off any debts that may have already occurred. Those are priorities of life. At the same time, busy being a good fig, lots of friends, getting to know other people and developing personal skills in that manner. I should add that too. In dating, it's hard to develop the kind of personal skills that are needed in life. If you're a friend to a lot of people, you're challenged more to develop those personal skills. So here's the first thing. He's occupied. But at some point, he has to come to grips with, should I be single or should I consider being married? If he thinks that God would have him to be married, he starts considering the women that he knows, the single women, based on their godliness and compatibility with himself, his own personality, and his goals. How often that uh, over the years we found people that uh, their hearts were set on going to missions and then they found some guy that doesn't want anything to do with missions or vice versa and they never pursue that. Why didn't they find someone that shared the same goals? Because it's usually left out of the, the equation in dating. But in courtship, that's a primary thing. Is this person compatible? Now, as this person looks around, they may say, you know, I don't know anybody that, that seems compatible with me at this point. In which case, continue being a good fig, develop new relationships. Or another thing that's easy is you can get recommendations by godly friends. You actually welcome a matchmaker in courtship. Why? Because you're looking at godly counsel. Look for people who know you and somebody else and they may be able to prepare you up. And that's a good thing. It's not a negative. It is in dating. Who wants to be set up on a date? I've had that happen. It was nasty. You just sit there all awkward the whole time, you know. Both of you do. You both feel set up. But in this, you actually welcome it. It's a different perspective because you want godly counsel. Um, I should add here that godly friendships, we're talking about that, they're primarily developed in group settings and in ministry. What better way to get to know what a person's character is like and what are the things that are most on their heart than when you're working together in some ministry project? It's a wonderful way to really know a person. Now, the ladies are thinking, well, what do I do while I'm waiting? You're only talking about the guy. What do I do? Well, the woman attracts a godly man by developing her own godly character. Be a good fig yourself um, because your character is what's going to attract the kind of guy that you want. Ladies, you can attract men. There's lots of ways that women can attract men. But the kind of man you attract is what's important for marriage. If you want to go have fun, that's one thing. And it's easy to attract guys who just want to have fun. You know, if you've got the money, honey, I've got the time. You heard that one? Yeah, well, that's true. There's a lot of guys who would be happy to spend your money and have a good time. You want a godly man, you must have a godly character. Work on that. Work on the kinds of priorities that should be in your life of developing character and skills for ministry and service for the Lord, regardless of whatever your future holds. doesn't matter. You'll be able to have a successful life, period, if you're keeping that in, in view of the whole time. How can I serve the Lord? Well, we're going to go on now and say that uh, he has found someone he's interested in. He thinks this is, is right. Well, he needs to um, then seek permission. Now, he should talk to the girl first and just let her know, this, you know, I have an interest in pursuing a relationship that could, could lead to marriage. Notice he didn't ask her to marry him. Okay? That's important. Don't scare her. 
Just say, is, I'm interested in that. May I talk to your father about this? Now, one qualifier there, I realize that some young ladies either don't have a father around or their relationship is so bad with their father, it wouldn't be helpful. But if she has any kind of decent relationship, the man should go to the father and seek his permission. Say, may I court your daughter? He'll have to explain what court is because he's going to fall over you know, with, I can't believe someone's asking me this, but explain it. Say, I want permission. I want you to be involved with our relationship. Now, that actually is a protection for her because a godly man, if she has a godly father, is going to go immediately to her and says, hey, this guy wants to court you. And before I give him an answer one way or the other, she actually probably would approach him first, she knows, he knows what she's thinking. If she says, Dad, this guy's been bugging me. I don't, I don't want to hurt his feelings, but I don't like him. You know what? Dad's the one that now takes the fall and says, no, son, a few more things, uh, maybe in a couple of years, come and ask me again. But right now, no. She doesn't have to give any excuse. Dad is protecting her. And guess what? That is the responsibility Dad's supposed to have, isn't it? Yeah, see, some of you ladies are going, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Why should I have to do that? Right? Let Dad be the one. So Dad's be the one who's going to protect your daughter. So he seeks that, but he seeks it from the standpoint as he wants parental involvement because he wants godly counsel. And then the relationship is developed primarily within the context of family and friends. You do things with their family. You do things with his family. You do things with your friends as a group. Because in that relationship, you find out a lot more about what your character is really like rather than paired off by yourself somewhere, which is what dating does. At whatever point the man and woman believe they're ready for marriage, they do so under the counsel of their family and friends. And then they get engaged and they plan their wedding. But see, the fundamental difference here, again, is this counsel that's available and sought in courtship, whereas in, in dating, it's almost shunned. Here's the most important decision your young people are going to make in their lives. You know, parents, you would not let your 18-year-old take out your brand new car, but you let them go off who knows where with whoever. Something's not right there. This is the most important decision your children will ever make. You need to be part of that decision. Not necessarily dictating anything. In fact, it would be resisted. But being there to counsel. And young people, if you're wise, you will seek the counsel of your parents. Even if they're non-Christians, they still love you. And they know you and your personality. And they can give you lots of good advice about what to look for in a marriage partner. Now again, that's the major difference. Until a person is ready for that position, you simply be good figs, develop your character, develop God relationships with others. You see, courtship avoids the pitfalls and heartaches of dating while better preparing people for a great marriage. Now, if you just want to go out and have a good time with people... Fig, being a fig is better than being a date. You can actually have a better time. Now, if you want more information on uh, courtship, I'd recommend I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Josh Harris. He's not related to me. I get no kickback from him on this, but it's an excellent book. And then for those who still think dating is wonderful, Josh McDowell, Greg Laurie have great books on that and a lot of other authors. But the one I've ended up recommending more than any other, because usually they come to me after they've already gotten too serious, is Too Close Too Soon by Jim Talley. He basically tells you to back off because your emotions are running farther than your mind has a... Well, your mind's somewhere in another state and your, your emotions are trying to fly over to the Atlantic. That's the difference. And I hope that's helpful to you. Again, there are biblical principles involved here. It's not an absolute you can never date. I have not said that. I've given you pros and cons. But let's think through seriously when we're talking about marriage and a marriage partner. What is the purpose of marriage? If you want your purpose to be fulfilled in what God says is there for marriage... You're going to be a lot more serious about it than, hey, I just find some guy and if it doesn't work out, then I'll get divorced. That's not an option in Christian marriage. It's a lifetime commitment. Let's remember to be diligent to pray for our young people and those who are uh, single that are looking for a, a mate, that God would 
grant them such a person, but also they would avoid the pitfalls that are so common in our society now, as well as continue to pray for those who are already married, that they might fulfill the purposes that God has made for it, especially in glorifying Christ and how they live.